Good morning, everyone, and thanks again for joining us uh, online as we continue this series on the problem of God. Great to see so many of you out uh, on Friday, uh, last Friday. Uh, thank you for joining the conversation, reading along with us and engaging uh, in some of these difficult topics. I know it's not easy. I know some of these things uh, are hard to tackle, but I appreciate so many of you that have uh, sent uh, emails with questions and texting and just trying to engage and think a little bit more deeply about some of these topics, and I really appreciate that. This Friday, uh, Mark Clark is actually going to be joining us, uh, the author of the book, The Problem of God. So we're starting at 7 p.m. He's going to jump on right at 7. So if you want to come a few minutes earlier, that'd be great. And he's just going to jump on and say hi and share a few things with us. So uh, look forward to that this Friday. And we'll also be dealing with the problem of hell. So try to keep that time free for this Friday. Also, the 10th person that joins this Friday, we're going to give the book Mere Christianity, uh, written by C.S. Lewis, a, a classic book on apologetics uh, and a book that's really wor uh, worthwhile reading. Okay. Next Sunday, we're going to be finishing up this series on the problem of God, talking about the problem of Jesus. Okay. And so that's going to be finishing up uh, next Sunday. Today, we're looking at another controversial uh, topic. Uh, because we're living in this postmodern, pluralistic culture and society, there's often a lot of pushback um, on this controversial topic, which is the problem of exclusivity. Okay? And sometimes when you think about this word to be an exclusivist or uh, thinking that there's an exclusive way to God, you can be considered as somebody that's uh, intolerant or narrow-minded or even offensive. We live in such an inclusive society that we don't want to exclude anyone or push anyone away. We want to be very inclusive in our thinking and in our actions. But we have to understand that there is a sense of truth as well. For example, I am either wearing glasses or I'm not wearing glasses. If you say I'm not wearing glasses, I don't want to just accept what you're saying just to make you feel good and to make you feel inclusive, right, in, in whatever you think. No, there is some objective truth. Uh, but to truly be inclusive, okay, for those that want to be inclusive to everyone, to truly be inclusive, then you have to include also the exclusivists, right, in order to be inclusive. And that becomes very difficult as well. The law of non-contradictions applies here, right? Two contradictory statements cannot be true at the same time. And that's what we're going we're to look at a little bit uh, today, this morning. So the problem of exclusivity. The question here is, is there one way to heaven? Many Christians even struggle with this concept and with this idea. We, we love to think that there are many ways to get to heaven. And maybe through all these many ways, it all leads to the same place. But that just can't be true. Because those paths that lead to maybe that one place are contradictory to each other. And you can't have that. It doesn't, it doesn't uh, fit properly, logically, reasonably. In Canada, we live in a, in a cultural mosaic where we have so many different cultures and so many different backgrounds and, and perspectives. And we love in Canada to be tolerant of everyone's view and everyone's perspective. And the problem here is that everyone can't be right. We can honor the view of different people, we can understand the views of different people, but they all can't be right. And that's what we want to see this morning. And I want to just uh, look at a few verses first as we, as we delve into this topic of the words of Jesus, what he said in terms of approaching to God, 
right? Uh, Colin read this, uh, this verse this morning, John 14, verse six. Jesus told him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. Jesus makes a pretty exclusive statement here that if you want to go to heaven, you want to go to the Father, you want to be joined uh, and be with God, you have to go through him, right? Probably the most famous verse in the Bible is John 3, 16, which we read this morning as well. But right after that verse, in verse 17, it says, God sent his son into the world not to judge the world, but to save the world through who? Through him. Right? And here again, there's a pretty exclusive statement that's made right after this famous verse that God so loved the world, but saying that salvation is through him, through Jesus, the son that was sent. Even in the early church, the early apostles, the leaders of the church uh, after Jesus, they even taught the same thing. In Acts 4 and verse 12, here um, Peter says, there is salvation in no one else. God has given no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. That only name in which we can receive salvation is through the name of Jesus. Now, I know this can sound very exclusivist. It can sound very difficult and hard. It can sound very intolerant, narrow-minded. And there's so many other words that can be used to describe maybe this position. And... um, but we, one thing that we have to understand and what we're going to look at this morning as well is that if we look at this very rationally, very logically, it's actually the most logical position if we're going to accept truth claims. In Timothy Keller's book, The Reason for God, which I'm going to quote a fair bit this morning, uh, he says that he asked, he's asked numerous people over his lifetime uh, what the biggest problem with Christianity is. And he says one of the most frequent answers that he gets is this, the problem of exclusivity. That Christians claim, and Jesus claims, that there's only one way to heaven, right? Keller was invited once to a debate with a a Muslim imam and a a Jewish rabbi. And in this debate, they, they all three of them agreed that if the claims of Christianity are true, then Muslims and Jewish people have it wrong. But if the claims of, uh, of say, the, the Muslim are true, then the Christian and the, uh, and the Jew are wrong. And so they came to this conclusion that all three of them can't be right. And that's really the most logical position. That's the most reasonable pos- position, right? We can respect the views of others, but we can't say that they're all right, right? Keller also agrees that one of the greatest barriers uh, to world peace is actually religion. He realizes and understands that religion in and of itself is very exclusive, and it causes divisions. It causes uh, problems and barriers. And so in his book, he proposes three things that can be done. You can either outlaw religion altogether, you can condemn religion, or you can keep religion completely private. And so as he he talks about condemning religion, and this is uh, what I want to share this morning, and it's from his book, The Reason from God, he proposes four axioms uh, about religion and why they're actually not true. And we're going to look at that this morning. So the first one is, all major religions are equally valid and basically teach the same thing. The second is, each religion sees part of spiritual truth, but none can see the whole truth. The third is religious belief is too culturally and historically conditioned to be, quote unquote, truth. And the last one is it is arrogant 
to insist your religion is right and to convert others to it. So he proposes these four axioms and goes on to show why they're actually not true. And so we're going to look at them this morning. And I want to invite you in on this journey as we look at these things and try to reason these things, look at this in a logical, reasonable sense. Again, as, as I mentioned from the beginning of the series, I'm not expecting everyone to agree with me or even what's written in the book. But I do invite you on this journey to examine truth and to research and think deeply about some of these topics. So the first thing, all major religions are equally valid and basically teach the same things. There's a two-part statement here, right? That all major religions are equally valid, and the second part, they basically teach the same thing. And so there have been religions throughout humanity, right? And some of those religions have been really terrible with child sacrifices, even in recent, uh, recent times, there have been various religions that have uh, caused detriment to people. Uh, think of David Koresh and the Branch Davidians and how people gather together and so many of them died. And there have been so many other groups like that. And so to say that all religious belief is equal or valid, right, or equally valid, is probably not the most logical thing to say because all religious beliefs are, are different. If you look at it reasonably, intellectually, you can say that different religions believe different things and all of those beliefs are, are not valid because some of them cause harm to people. Some of them lead to brainwashing. Some of them lead to a loss of freedom. Some of them lead to, lead to very detrimental outcomes. Now, you might argue that maybe the major religions of the world, like Christianity, uh, Islam, Judaism, Hinduism, Buddhism, maybe those are on equal footing. Maybe those ones you know, are, are, are similar. Now, there may be some similar things in each of those religions, in each of those faiths about uh, bettering humanity for good, but there are also a lot of differences that actually can be quite contentious. Buddhism, for example, actually came out of rejecting Hinduism, right? So that in and of itself is a different. They rejected the, the Vedas and the caste system, and so there's a big difference right there. Earlier in this series, we talked a little bit about karma and how that was practiced by a number of Eastern religions, even with uh, Buddhism and Hinduism and other, uh, and other faiths, and the inability even maybe to help people in that state because you have to let karma play its course, run its course. You have to allow karma to do its work so that way the person can pay their dues and hopefully have a better life the next time around. This is a huge difference between Christianity and, and Hinduism. And so when you look at some of the differences between some of these major faiths, you can say that not all major religions are equally valid, and, and they don't all teach the same thing for sure, right? When you look at most uh, major religions, there are so many different beliefs that are there. The, the, I'll just name a few general topics, and for all of these topics, most of the major religions have different views, uh, different views on how people are saved and go to heaven, uh, the nature of God, uh, the nature of the afterlife, accountability and sinfulness, uh, religious practice and good works, uh, authenticity of their holy writings, the, the origin and meaning of life, uh, evil and suffering, which we dealt with earlier as well. All of these, th all of these major faiths have different ways of dealing with these topics and different doctrinal stances and views on them. And so to say that God is all loving and cares for all humanity and, and these differences are negligible or, or, or 
doesn't make uh, much of a difference is actually a logically inconsistent viewpoint and it's not fair to these major uh, religious faiths and, and other religious faiths. It's actually devaluing doctrinal teaching while insisting on their own doctrinal teaching, right? It, it, it's, it, it's in a sense a contradictory statement. Timothy Keller says this, he says, ironically, the insistence that doctrines do not matter, meaning like all these doctrinal teachings of different faiths, they don't really matter. At the end, God is love and all roads lead to heaven, right? The, the ins insistence that doctrines do not matter is really a doctrine in itself. So to say all these things don't matter, all roads lead to heaven, God is a God of love, that in and of itself is a doctrine and in a teaching. And so in devaluing some other doctrines and teaching, you're actually valuing another doctrine and teaching. It says it holds a specific view of God, which is touted as superior and more enlightened than the beliefs of most major religions. So the proponents of this view do the very thing they forbid others. And so in, try to be, in trying to be inclusive and saying, no, 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 God is a God of love, let's welcome everyone in, all these paths lead to, lead to one place, in in trying to include everyone, they're actually proposing a doctrinal belief, a doctrinal statement that they feel are superior to the other doctrinal statements and actually devaluing the others. What they're trying to do is the same thing that other religious faiths are doing, right? And this is actually a, a very Western way of thinking, right? If you see other religions, especially in the East, and see what people have been fighting over for, for years, for centuries, if you take the Palestinians and the, and the Jews and, and what they're fighting over and giving their lives for, and then you tell them, don't worry about it, you're all going to end up in the same place. Don't worry about it, all your roads lead to heaven. They're going to say, well, what am I living and dying for? What am I fighting for? What am I trying to, to advance? What cause am I trying to advance? And so to say that all religions basically you know, have the same beliefs and there's not much difference is actually devaluing what they believe and actually devaluing the doctrinal stances that they take. Number two, each religion sees part of the spiritual truth, but none can see the whole truth, right? This argument is given to say that, hey, we don't understand everything, right? But we can understand maybe parts of something. And so maybe all these different religious faiths, they have a grasp of something, but they don't understand everything. Now, there's a, a huge fallacy in this statement because you have to be one person that understands everything in order to make this statement to say that some people understand part. How can you say that some people understand part if you don't see everything? The example that's often given here is the example of an elephant and blind men, right? And each of the blind men, they come and they're touching different parts of the elephant, the trunk or the, the horn or the ears or the tail or the leg, and they're all experiencing, they're blind, so they're all experiencing a different part of the elephant, right? And so the illustration here is that you can only understand a certain part. Each religion has a certain amount of truth, right? But it doesn't have the whole truth, the, the irony in where this illustration actually falls apart is the fact that this is told from the viewpoint of somebody who does understand the whole thing. The only way the illustration works is by a person saying that he sees the whole elephant, he sees the whole truth, and thereby saying that only some people have part of the truth. And so you can't refute all these claims unless you actually see the bigger picture and it's a perspective that none of us have except God. Leslie Newbegin, who was a theologian and a missionologist as well, he said this regarding this, this proposition. He said this, there is an appearance of humility in the protestation that the truth is much greater than any of us can grasp, meaning seeing the whole elephant, seeing the big picture instead of just parts of it. But if this is used 
if this is used to invalidate all claims to discern the truth, it is in fact an arrogant claim to a kind of knowledge which is superior to all others. We have to ask, what is the absolute vantage ground from which you can claim to be able to relativize all the absolute claims these different scriptures make? And so what Newbegin says here, it's like, look, if you're saying that all of these relative religious claims are invalid if they're, they're not true, from what vantage point are you actually making those claims, right? From what perspective are you actually saying those things, right? Again, a logical view of this statement leads to this statement actually falling apart, right? That each religion sees part of the spiritual truth, but not the whole spiritual truth, right? So to say that each religion has a few things right, but not everything is, is logically impossible because we don't see everything. It's an assumption and not a truth claim. Third thing, religious belief is too culturally and historically conditioned to be truth. Now, this is a little bit more difficult to understand, so stay with me here. On, on Friday on our Zoom call, we were talking about the historical evidence or, or the proof of Jesus, right? That he was a real person that really lived. And oftentimes the gospels are actually discounted in proving that Jesus lived because it's a religious text. It's discounted on the fact that it's a religious text, but it's actually primary source evidence. It's a historical document, primary source evidence that we can actually look at. And in a similar way, religious belief is also often discounted as truth because we say it is culturally and historically conditioned. Tim Keller, when he first came to New York City, when he went to plant his church in New York City, um, he said he often heard the argument that all religions are equal, which is what we just talked about before. But about 20 years after that, he said he started to hear more often that all religions are false, right? Why? Because of this because of the consideration that religious belief is just culturally and historically conditioned. So how can you really know what is true, right? Um, and so that's why even in this series, we've been trying to really look at the facts, we've been trying to reason, we've been trying to see things logically and really contrast the atheistic belief versus the theistic belief. And that's what we're doing on Sundays and even on, on Fridays. Um, but the reason sometimes for discounting that our values and our beliefs uh, are affected by our, our culture and history is because of our own religious beliefs, right? Uh, sometimes we, we try to figure out, well, what's good and what's bad based on how I was raised, based on culture, based on my, on my history, depending on where you were born, depending on what kind of family you were born into, depending on what kind of beliefs you were taught uh, growing up. Obviously, that affects our faith and affects what we, what we believe and what we trust and what we know. However, the problem with this statement is that it self-destructs within itself, right? Because to say that religious belief is culturally and historically conditioned is also to make even an assertment to say that I believe what I believe because of my culture and because of my historical value, right? Keller says it this way. He says, the social conditionedness of belief is a fact, but it cannot be used to argue that all truth is completely relative or else the very argument refutes itself, right? So when we look at this, uh, this idea that, hey, I believe what I believe because of the family that I grew up. I believe what I believe because of the culture that I grew up in. And maybe if I was born in a different place or born in a different time, then maybe I would believe something different, right? 
but what skeptics argue about this idea of it being culturally and historically conditioned is that the belief is not valid if it is culturally and historically conditioned. That it's not really truth. That's why the truth was in quotes. It's not really truth because it's being conditioned by your culture. So is Christianity really true? No, it's just because you were conditioned by it because of the family you grew up in, right? And that's the argument that's here. Philosopher Alvin Plantiga, we quoted him some time ago as well in the series, he responded to the question, well, Alvin, if you were born in Morocco, you probably would have been a Muslim instead of being a Christian. So this is what he says. He says this, suppose we concede that if I was born of Muslim parents in Morocco rather than Christian parents in Michigan, my beliefs would have been quite different. He says, probably so. But the same goes for the pluralist. If the pluralist had been born in Morocco, he probably wouldn't be a pluralist. Does it follow that his pluralistic beliefs are produced in him by an unreliable belief-producing process? So can you see how the argument fails here? To say, you're just a Christian because of the family you grew up in and the country you were born in and the culture that you were born in, and that's why you're a Christian, and that's why you believe what you believe, and so therefore those beliefs are really not true. Well, the argument can, can self-destructs when it turns back on the pluralist to say, well, you believe in pluralism because of the culture you were born in, because of the way you grew up, and because of what you were taught as well. Does that make your beliefs any less uh, worthwhile, any less true than the Christian's beliefs or the Muslim's belief? You can't say that all claims about religions are historically and culturally conditioned except the one that you are making to state that. If you're stating it yourself, then your argument self-destructs in and of itself, right? So if you say that no one can determine which beliefs are right and wrong, then why should we believe that statement, right? See, we all make truth claims, all of us. Every religion makes a truth claim. Exclusivity is actually the way truth works. I can be either wearing glasses or not wearing glasses. I have to exclude one or the other in order to have the truth. You can't have it both ways. And so that's why we need to do the hard work of examination, reason, research, and study to discover what truth is. We can't just discount it altogether, but we need to actually logically reason what truth is, and that's what we've been trying to do in this series on Sundays and on Fridays, right? But there's another component that's very unique to Christianity, right, and unique to religions, and, and, and I propose this for, for, for Christians that are out there or for skeptics that are listening, is that there's a faith component as well that informs what we believe. Reason and logic and research can only take us so far. There's another step of faith that we take in believing in Jesus, right? And that experience, that trust, that hope and faith in Christ that has a tangible impact on our lives transcends social and historical conditioning, right? And brings us into a relationship with Christ. The fourth thing, it's arrogant to insist your religion is right and to convert others to it, right? It's arrogant to insist that your religion is right and to convert others to it, okay? And now I'm gonna talk about the first part and then the second part, convert others to it. I wanna show you uh, why I think Christianity is powerful, 
why I think the claims of Christ are powerful and why I think actually the claims of Christ bring a very inclusive, tolerant society and environment around us, right? Skeptics argue that, that any claim to superior knowledge, understanding or spiritual enlightenment, any claim saying, well, I think Jesus is this or I think God is this, any claim to that can't be true. But that statement in and of itself is a religious belief because it believes that God is unknowable or that God is all loving or that God is a God of judgment and truth, whatever it might be. All of these things are faith assumptions that are unprovable. In actual fact, the faith position is believed to be something superior, right? When it says here, it's arrogant to insist that your religion is right. So come over to my side. It's arrogant to say that your way is the right way. So come over to my side because I think my side is the right way because I want to include everyone. Isn't that a faith position? Aren't you trying to push your value system and what you think is superior on that person? Can you see the incongruency in this argument? that the view is also exclusive to its core. So we can't escape exclusivity because it's so intimately connected with truth. And so to say, it's arrogant to insist that your religion is right, well, that statement in and of itself is exclusive. That statement in and of itself is saying, don't believe what you believe, come over to my side because I have a more enlightened, superior view. And you should accept what I'm saying about all religions, right? And so, if you are to discourage all views that seem to be religious, then you gotta discourage this view as well. See, skeptics argue that, that people are bringing others over to a faith side and their side is not a faith position, but actually, it is a faith position. You're trying to promote a view that you think is superior than other people's views. Keller says it this way, it is no more narrow to claim that one religion is right than to claim that one way to think about all religions, namely that all are equal, is right. We are all exclusive in our beliefs about religion, but in different ways. And so that argument, right, that it's arrogant to say, to insist that your religion is right, really falls apart, because you're trying to win people over to your side, which you think is more superior and more enlightened than other religious perspectives and view, views. So why do I think that Christianity is powerful. Why do I think that the Christian viewpoint, the scriptural viewpoint, the viewpoint of Jesus is actually the powerful position and the really a very logical and reasoned position? Let me share with you four things very quickly. Number one, Christian beliefs can root out divisive tendencies. Right? Again, we live in a very polarized culture right now. In the world today, things are, are, are very divisive, right? especially politics. Right? There's division everywhere, not just in religion. But Christ preached and the apostles lived with deep appreciation for other people. Jesus went to the marginalized. Jesus went to the rejected. He went to the despised. He went to the outcast, and he sought to draw them in to fellowship and relationship. He wasn't trying to divide, but trying to bring together. Jesus' prayer was for unity. Now, you might see even Christians causing divisions, and let me propose that even the actions of Christians might not accurately reflect the doctrinal teaching of Christ and the apostles, right? Because we are flawed human beings with a sinful nature, and we falter and fail. And so sometimes even Christians' actions don't accurately display what Christ taught and what the apostles taught, right? 
In John uh, 17 and verse 21, it says, I pray that they will all be one, just as you and I are one, as you are in me, Father, and as I am in you. And may they be in us so that the world will believe that you sent me. See, the call of Christ is to forgive. That's what he did when he was on this earth. He went from place to place, people to people, and he forgave. And he loved, and he wanted unity, and brought people together. And the call of Christ is to forgive, to bear with one another, to accept, and to encourage others. It's completely opposite from being divisive and exclusive, but in bringing people together into his love. In the book, uh, The Problem of God, Mark Clark spoke about a, an instance when he was uh, attending a high school class, and there was a Muslim woman in his class, and the professor made fun of her. And she came out of the class crying and, and weeping, and Mark Clark went actually and stood up for her and said, you can't be making fun of a Muslim woman that way. You can't be saying these sort of things. And the, the, the teacher ended up apologizing for that. See, cultural pluralism means to accept and celebrate different cultures, people, races, or religions. That's cultural pluralism. Metaphysical pluralism is different. And that means to accept the ideas of religions, cultures, and worldviews as true. See, we should fight for cultural pluralism. Even Jesus saw different people and brought them in together as one. But metaphysical pluralism just doesn't make sense because you can't have it both ways. You can't have it both sides. You can't have your cake and eat it too. You can't have those two things because truth in and of itself is an exclusive claim. We need to practice cultural pluralism. We live even here in the city of Markham, in the, in the city of Toronto, uh, in the GTA where we live. We live in a cultural mosaic and we can celebrate cultures and we can honor even other religions and other faiths. But it's different to say that they're all right, right? In the book of Acts, we read about Peter. Peter was going to the, Peter was a Jew, and he was called to go to the house of Cornelius. And before all of this happened, Peter had this vision, and he saw all these animals that were unclean, and he had this vision of these animals coming there. And, and the word of God came to Peter and, and said, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter said, no, 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 I can't eat those animals. They're, they're unclean. Right? God was preparing Peter because the next thing that Peter had to do was go to the house of a Gentile, which he didn't want to do, which he thought he shouldn't do because they were considered unclean. But God's word came to Peter in Acts 10 verse 15, and the Lord's word said, but the voice spoke again, do not call something unclean if God has made it clean. See, this is the very heart of God. This is the very heart of Jesus, that dying on the cross to forgive us of our sins, he draws us and accepts us into his family. That we are all brought in together as one. You don't call someone else unclean. You don't call someone else dirty or filthy or, or, or a castaway or an outcast. No. Jesus intentionally, purposefully went to the outcasts. He intentionally, purposefully went to the despised and the rejected. And the apostles saw that as well. When they saw all of the Gentiles, a different culture, a different race, to their own Jewishness, coming into the family of God, being accepted into the family of God. This is the very core of Christian belief and understanding that we bring us, that brings us all together as one. 
and radically goes against this whole idea of divisiveness. No, he brings us in together as one. Jesus on the cross himself cried out, Father, forgive them. He asked for forgiveness for the very people that were crucifying and killing him, the very people that were doing him harm. Even those people, Jesus said and prayed to the Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. See, Jesus is the bridge builder. Jesus is the bridge builder to forgiveness, to love, to care, to kindness, and he calls us to do the same. He calls us into this experience of salvation. And that's why it says here, Keller says, God's grace does not come to people who morally outperform others, but to those who admit their failure to perform and who acknowledge their need for a savior. I don't know about you, but I need a savior. I need Jesus to help me. The second thing, Christians believe that all humans are created in the image of God. Now, this is very powerful when we talk about divisiveness and exclusivity and and this idea that we reject other people. No, because we are all created in the image of God. It speaks the value, worth, and dignity of human life. Genesis 1 verse 27, so God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. And so life is valuable. Life is precious to God and to us. And that is why we have a mission to go out and share the word of God because God values each and every life. Yes, we go out and share God's love. Yes, we want people to know Jesus. Why? Because every human life has worth, value, and dignity. And Jesus died for each and every one. That's why in 2 Peter it says, he, Jesus, does not want anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone to repent. He doesn't want to even lose one person. Can you see the heart of God because we are created in the image of God? We are created in the likeness of God. He wants to bring us all together as one. We have worth, value, and dignity, each and every person, each and every soul. That's why in Matthew 7 and verse 12, it says, do to others whatever you would like them to do to you. This is the essence of all that is taught in the law and prophets. Treat other people in the same way that you would want to be treated because we all have dignity and value. We are all created in the image of God. Can you see how these arguments radically contrast this idea that Christianity is bigoted, is arrogant, is narrow-minded, is prejudiced? No, it's completely the opposite. And so this idea of exclusivity gets a bad name, but rationally and logically, exclusivity is needed for truth, for real truth and value. But within the, within the gospel of Jesus, within what Christianity promotes and talks about, is that there's a radical inclusion into the family of God because we're all created in the image of God. Number three, Christians realize that others might live morally superior lives, right? And if you're a Christian and you didn't know that, here's a truth for you, okay? We're not the best, We're not the holiest. We're not the most upright. We actually will falter and fail so many times. And there's an argument, and we'll deal with this on another Friday call. It's the problem of hypocrisy. There's another problem that people say, I don't want to go to church because all those guys are all hypocrites. Well, you know, we realize that other people will live morally superior lives than us because our salvation is not based on good works. Our salvation is not based on the good that we can do. Our salvation is based on the good that Jesus did for us. We realize that we are people with sinful natures and we falter and we fail. 
However, most of the major religions in the world teach some type of works-based salvation that cause them to try to do good. And even atheists as well, because of the moral law that is within us, desire to do good and strive to do good deeds. So based on the previous fact that we're all created in the image of God, we have no problems. Christian has, have no problems. And if you do have a problem with this, reevaluate what you believe. But really, Christians should have no problem with acknowledging that others will live morally superior lives at times because of our sinful nature. There are times, and as I said before, we might not actually live up to, in practice to what we believe, right? We might not actually live up to, that, to what Jesus and the apostles taught because of our fallen human nature. And we see that there are other people of other faiths or even of no faith that will live morally superior lives. Because in many cases, there's a works-based salvation that strives to do good, that strives to earn a place in heaven, which is completely opposite to what Jesus calls us to. He calls us to the free gift of salvation. Christianity, Keller says, Christianity not only leads its members to believe people of other faiths have goodness and wisdom to offer, it also leads them to expect that many will live lives morally superior to their own. We're not trying to look down on other fates or look down on other people, not at all. We realize that we'll falter and fail. Even Jesus, when he lived in this world and he was telling parables and stories, you might know the parable of the Good Samaritan. In the parable of the Good Samaritan, Jesus doesn't lift up the Jewish person. Jesus doesn't lift up the Levite. Jesus doesn't lift up the priest who were the religious people, the supposedly morally superior people. No. He lifts up the person that's outcast. He says the Samaritan who was considered an outcast, the Samaritan who was considered somebody of a different culture and a different ethnicity, that person did well. And my own people, the Jewish person, my own people, the priest, failed greatly in helping their neighbor. Right? Our exclusivity doesn't mean that others aren't good. But it does exemplify Christ and what he calls us to do. The last thing, and I'll end with this. Christians believe in self-sacrifice and following the example of Jesus. When you look at the early Christians, they lived countercultural lives. When you look at the early Christians and what they did, it was phenomenal. It was radical. There were huge economic gaps in the Roman world that caused great divisions. But you see in the early church, people selling what they had, and sharing among themselves, right? The rich selling what they had and sharing amongst others. They sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. That was radical. They were, they were living very radical lives, right? There was race mixing that was going on. As we already saw in the example of Peter, when Peter as a Jew went to Cornelius' house, a Gentile, somebody of a different ethnicity, of a, a different nationality completely from him. And there was mixing that was going on. The divide between Jew and Gentile was falling and falling rapidly. That's why Paul says, there's no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. See, the teaching of the early church and the doctrines of the apostles, they were, they were radical, right? There was no longer Jew and Gentile. Those divisions were being taken away. That idea that you're over here and I was, no, we are part of one big family. 
right? People of, of different classes, different hierarchy, different races, and even gender found unity, oneness, and equality in God's family, right? The poor who were often despised and rejected, the early church would take care of the poor, would take care of the orphans, would take care of the widows, right? Paul says, he said their only suggestion, meaning the, the apostles and elders told Paul, gave him certain suggestions, and he said their only suggestion was that we keep on helping the poor. Be mindful of this. Help the poor, which I have always been eager to do. Even women in that society was with, they didn't have much hope. They were despised. They were lower, lower uh, in, in class and lower in caste, right? But Christianity actually offered a very countercultural way of even looking at women and dealing with women, right? Paul entrusted his epistles and the responsibility of the church even to women. It was something that was really countercultural. Jesus' first message that he was risen from the dead was given to a woman to be passed on to the other disciples, right? In, in the early church, in the first couple of centuries, when there were plagues and sicknesses that were going on, right? Maybe something similar to like a pandemic that we're going through. Christians were often seen caring for the poor, caring for the sick, even to the detriment of their own lives. Now, some of these things might seem like universal truths to us now. Some of these things that the early church were doing that were really radical might say, yeah, that makes total sense. We should do those things. Well, do you know that it was Christianity that stemmed the tide of, of, of what culture used to be and changed it in all of these years to bring it to what it is right now where these type of things of caring for the poor, loving the lost, helping others, expressing love, all of these things that we see now, it started with what they did in the early church. It was the impact of Christianity across that whole world that radically transformed culture. And where do they learn all these things? From Jesus. How do they know to do all these things? Well, Jesus did it. He told people to sell their goods and give to the poor. He didn't favor the rich or the successful or the wealthy over others. He removed barriers between classes and gender. He, he went and talked to a Samaritan woman at the well, and the disciples came back and said, what in the world are you doing? She's a Samaritan, number one. She's a woman, number How are you even talking to her? He went to the disenfranchised, and he went to the rejected. He modeled self-sacrifice by giving up his own life and gave us an example to follow. Where did the early church learn these things? They saw it in Jesus. They saw it in their Lord and Master. They saw it modeled in him. The way, the truth, and the life, right? Keller says it this way. Why would such an exclusive belief system lead to behavior that was so open to others? It was because Christians had within their belief system the strongest possible resource for practicing sacrificial service, generosity, and peacemaking. At the very heart of their view of reality was a man who died for his enemies, that's Jesus, praying for their forgiveness. Reflection on this could only lead to a radical different way of dealing with those who are different from them. Our exclusive beliefs lead us to accepting, humble, 
peace-loving kindness towards others. You may think Christianity is wrong, but one thing for sure is that not everything is right. Exclusivity brings out the truth. But what I do see from the Christian worldview is that it leads to tolerance, acceptance, redemption, and hope, which we're really lacking in the world today. In the marketplace of ideas, Christianity offers the most and best answers to the big questions that plague the world, as we've, we've seen throughout this series already, about origin and meaning, about evil and suffering, about sexuality, and so many other things. See, we can't all be right. Exclusivity is part of truth. But a reasonable, reasoned approach to the truth, I believe, will point to Christ and to his claims that radically changed the world and brought love, forgiveness, and grace to humanity because he says, you don't need to work for salvation. I give it to you as a gift. Now, it doesn't mean that we don't do good works afterwards, yes, but we can't earn salvation. We can't buy it. We can't strive for it our whole life and hope that we get it at the end. No. Jesus came into this world and died for you and for me to give us the free gift of salvation, to give us hope, to welcome us into his family. All we need to do is accept his claims, to accept what he said, to believe on him, that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, which we'll look at next week, you will be saved. It's the free gift of eternal life that Christ offers to us. He invites us today to his table to fellowship with us, to know us, and for us to know him. God bless you.